Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. The big mystery in bond markets this week is whether or not 10-year Treasury yields can break out of the range that they have been in. Can they break out rising above 3%? Here to answer that mystery, Mike Collins, Senior Investment Officer and Portfolio Manager at PGM Fixed Income. Mike, what's the answer? Why is uh, is the 10-year Treasury yield pegged below 3% no matter what? Good morning, Lisa. Yeah, it looks like it's breaking out to the downside, if anything, here, right, right? Uh, in the near term. And that's really been our view all along. Our view has been, you know, 3% is really probably the high water mark. Anything above that would be an overshot kind of scenario where rates, you know, really overreacted to what's likely to be the path of growth and inflation and, and Fed rate hikes. You know, we came into the year um, understanding that the, the one thing that uh, we had the most conviction in is that volatility is probably going to be higher, right? because you have bigger tail risks, right? Last year, it felt like, you know, or the last few years, we're going to grow at 2% and everything steady as she goes. But with the, you know, aggressive removal of monetary accommodation, the downside and upside tails have, have increased. Here's what I'm struggling with. There were a couple of weeks there where the narrative had shifted to a supply-demand dynamic, where all of a sudden the U.S. was about to issue a record amount of debt. The deficit was deepening. Will there be enough demand? The Federal Reserve is letting its balance sheet run off a little bit. So what happened to that whole discussion? <laughs> well, the, the Treasury market's a very you know large, uh, efficient market, and it tends to uh, reprice new information really quickly. And that's why you get these kind of you know jerky moves in rates. And we've seen that. That, you know, a couple moves from two percent, you know, last September to two and a half, and then close to three, you know, in, in a couple big steps. And you know, the first half of that move, I think, was just repricing in the the reacceleration of growth and the potential for slightly higher inflation, and certainly uh, the expectation for for more aggressive Fed rate hikes. And it feels like the last you know, 40, 50 basis points was probably trying to find a clearing level for all the incremental supply. But that, that's in the market now, right? Everybody basically knows what the funding uh, requirements are for the, the government for the next few years. So that, I think, has been priced in at this point. So where do we uh, end the year for 10-year Treasury yields? You know, uh, again, it's really um, a bifurcated, you know, binary uh, outcome, potentially. It's it's really weird. Normally, you have a base case that's like 80%, and you have these small tails. But right now, it feels like, you know, one tail is that we're sitting here at the end of the year, and growth is slower, and inflation is lower. I'm looking at the tips market this morning. You know, break-evens are are falling, meaning people's, you know, expectations for inflation are actually coming down, um, which which actually makes sense to us. And, And maybe rates are back at, you know, 250. The other tail is... You know, maybe we continue to get this reacceleration. Maybe finally we get some, you know, signs of inflation rearing its head, and maybe it, it ends at, at three. But, you know, it, it feels like uh, to us that the Fed is not going to be able to raise rates all the way to that long-term dot they have, which is right about three and a half percent is what they expect the funds rate to be at the end of 2020. And, and I think that is highly unlikely. Uh, so if they pull back at all from that, you can see a rally in rates. So, uh, Mike, given that sort of bifurcated potential, it sounds like you're positioning yourself for more of a rally 
in treasuries and uh, inflation undershooting and people ratcheting back their expectations. So as a portfolio manager, how are you positioned around that? Yeah, so so we um, uh, added to duration, you know, at these higher levels, and we continue to be slightly long duration in our portfolios relative to our our benchmarks. Uh, we continue to have a curve flattener on, which really worked well last year, and it's actually worked this year, despite you know consensus view that oh the curve's uh, bound to steepen. You know, we don't believe that, right? Because if the Fed insists on moving along that very aggressive hiking path, uh, the curve is going to flatten, right? If they get the funds rate to three or above three, the curve is going to be flat or inverted. So, yeah, so we've, you know, maintained a slightly long duration bias at these higher levels toward 3% and, and a yield curve flattener. So what about credit? Credit is, a, is actually a tricky call. I think that's a, going to be a bigger deal over the next year or two or three uh, than the rate scenario. And, and I think we're at a bit of an inflection point in credit. We're definitely seeing more uh, competition among companies, and you just see the volatility that's reared its head in the, in the equity markets. And a lot of the business models are being called into question, whether you know it's a car company <clears> Tesla. or... Tesla. <laughs> what's that? Tesla. Yeah, Tesla, you name it. it Netflix. Netflix bonds re- are actually selling off today. It's sort of interesting. Yeah. It's not just, you know, Tesla's down in the mid-80s, their bonds, right? And, um, you know, they came not that long ago at a five-handle coupon, which we thought was was way too low for a a pretty risky company that's burning $3 billion in cash this year. So um, it's going to be, uh, you know, a lot of idiosyncratic, nagging credit problems, I, I believe, over the next few years. So you really have to be careful on credit. We have pared back our exposure to investment-grade and high-yield industrial corporate bonds to, to really uh, become a little more defensive here. How concerned are you about the swath of triple B-rated investment-grade bonds? Just to put this into perspective, uh, the amount of triple B bonds, which is the lowest tier of investment-grade credit, uh, accounts for the biggest proportion of the $6 trillion U.S. corporate debt market that is rated investment-grade. Are you preparing for a, a sort of rash of downgrades among that debt? You know, this is a trend we've been seeing throughout my entire 30-year career, right? The investment-grade corporate index has gone from double-A to single-A to triple-B, effectively. Right. Uh, and you see even the banks have moved along that same uh, negative credit migration path. Um, but what happens is the, the higher-quality companies, the double-A's and single-A's, are really not incentivized to stay there, right? So they are levering up their capital structures to move into triple-B. That's really what's happened. Uh, once you get into triple-B, companies are extremely reticent to lever up further, right? They do not want to go into junk land because then their financing costs soar, their access to markets and liquidity really become restricted. And a lot of these companies, as you point out, have a lot of debt that they're going to have to refinance at some point. So we actually, believe it or not, are underweight, the double-A, single-A part of the market because of that negative credit migration, as we call it, and overweight select triple-Bs because there's a lot more opportunities to add alpha or add value by avoiding the triple-Bs that might go to junk and picking the ones that, you know, maybe just did a big M&A deal and have levered up and issue new bonds that, you know, attractive spreads, and you can take advantage of that as, as an entry point. So you've been reducing exposure to some investment-grade credit, also to some high-yield credit. What have you been adding to instead? It sounds like long-term treasuries and, and well, you know, tre- Well, treasuries to, to some extent, but really uh, it's a l- little more of a credit barbell. So a, a lot of the proceeds have gone into AAA asset-backed securities. I know it's a little uh, esoteric, but these are actually really undervalued in our mind for the underlying credit risk, right? If you're worried about waking up and, and reading the paper and seeing Trump tweet or, or <laughs> something happening and your, you know, your company is, is having some competitive issues, yeah. you don't have to worry about that when you're in the AAA 
of a CMBS or a collateralized loan obligation security that has tremendous, tremendous credit enhancement or support uh, yeah. below you. So we've actually built pretty big positions in that paper. But on the other side of the barbell, we have added on the margin to some emerging market debt, right? Some of the emerging market and even European peripheral sovereigns have come out of recessions in the last few years, right? And they're, they're on an improving path. Mike Collins, thank you so much for being with me. Uh, always wonderful to hear what you have to say. Mike Collins, Senior Investment Officer and Portfolio Manager at PGM Fixed Income, talking about the current uh, fixed income market that he oversees, uh, helps oversee about $709 billion. This is Bloomberg. Amazon stocks down the most for three days since February 2016. Why? Well, perhaps because President Trump confirmed that he is now focused on Amazon in a Twitter post today. But perhaps there's more to it than that. Joining us now, Shira Ovide, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist. We always love speaking with her. Shira, what's going on with Amazon today? Uh, In a word, Trump. Is it? Yes, I think it is. So we saw both yesterday and today Amazon shares responding to news. Yesterday there was an Axios story. Today Trump himself tweeted early this morning about basically his concerns that Amazon is hurting U.S. cities and states by not paying taxes, quote unquote, uh, hurting the U.S. Postal Service, um, hurting retailers. It's The Axios story described Trump as obsessed with Amazon and trying to come up with ways to kind of curtail its power. But, you know, even a lot of people who might disagree with President Trump on a lot of issues do agree with him about curtailing Amazon's power. And, you know, I'm wondering how much the shares are accurately pricing in that aspect. And, you know, And if that's not on the table, then are they overreacting to President Trump's tweets? It's clearly an overreaction. Look, it's we've been talking about this for a couple of years now that all of these large U.S. tech companies, they're at a point where people are questioning whether they have too much unchecked power uh, on every dimension, right? And Amazon is certainly in that conversation, too. And there's been kind of a parlor game in certain circles to talk about Amazon and and maybe think about whether different kinds of antitrust laws should be applied um, to Amazon, which is not a conventional antitrust case by any stretch of the imagination. It has small market share. It's not hurting. It's not raising consumer prices, as far as we can tell, in the broader economy, things like that. Um, So yes, I think what's happening here is just kind of anxiety and noise that if the president doesn't like a company, maybe that's bad for the company. Uh, But you're right. He's certainly not alone in wondering if Amazon is doing harm in certain sectors of the economy, but it's not really clear what could be done at the government level to change that. Um, so we are talking about Fang stocks. We dealt with the A. Um, I want to. I want to move on to another A. I think that there are two A's in there. There uh, are the Fang. Yeah. The Fang. Okay. So <laughs> I want to talk about Apple. Yeah. Uh, and you put out a really interesting column about their iPad initiative, trying to get them into schools. And I, I had a, an initial gut reaction to this that I think was somewhat similar to yours just because my children are in school and they have Chromebooks. Um, but but you were saying that uh, Apple needs schools more than they need its iPads. 
Well, look, I'm, it's not a secret that iPad sales of iPads peaked in 2013 and have been declining every year since then. It's clearly a device that is popular in certain circles, as a lot of people like it, but is not a world-changing device, either you know, for technology at large, nor for Apple's bottom line. It's obviously a big business, uh, but in the scale of Apple, not a game changer. So they're trying again as they did when the iPad initially came out, to make a push into U.S. schools, where, as you said, Google, I mean, I said this before, it's really the most undercover tech story of the last five years, is what Google has done to sweep into U.S. schools with Chromebooks, with their suite of software, and really to dislodge Apple and, and Microsoft to some extent, too, from school districts um, in this way that's been really interesting to see. And Apple's trying again to kind of make a different case, different pitch to school districts, too. To adopt iPads. I my my initial reaction to this was three hundred sticker uh, price sticker. That's huge, and especially compared with the price of Chromebooks. And frankly, fancier and better screens isn't going to cut it when you're talking about a basic device that students need to just communicate with their teacher, write papers, keep track of their homework, and the like. You don't want it to be too distracting. Yeah, it's it's a good point. I mean, look, the the thing with the iPad, you're right. It's a three hundred dollar device. Um, Apple is also talking about uh, their their digital styluses, which is another ninety or so. And then remember, those devices don't come with keyboards. So if you want your kid to have a keyboard, that's more money. Uh, but I think and kids the, lose things all the kids, time. Yeah, I mean, the stylus, I, I guarantee you 100% of children will lose or damage um, a digital stylus. The interesting thing about Chromebooks is not just that they're relatively low cost, they're sort of $200 and up uh, for schools, but also that, it, you know, Google has kind of thought smartly about the kind of software around those devices, right? That you can log into your Gmail or Google Docs account from any device. Um, they have these uh, this piece of software for teachers where teachers can kind of assign homework and see what kids are doing on their screens. And Google very smartly thought about what teachers really need in the classroom and then delivered that to school districts and told school districts over and over again, this will be good for you. Apple's trying to make a little bit of a different pitch, which is more about creativity, right? So, okay, if you want your kids to write papers, maybe Chromebooks is the way to go. But if you want your kids to make, you know, videos of... Uh, dissecting frogs and annotate those um, those videos with their digital styluses. That is something that is in Apple's wheelhouse and is not really in Google's wheelhouse. I will say, uh, as a parent, the simpler often <laughs> ends up being the most effective. I don't disagree with you. And yeah. I wonder about uh, school districts kind of feeling the same way as that, but we'll see. Yeah. Thank you so much, Shira Oviday. Love having you on. Shira Oviday, technology columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly. Read her columns, G-A-D-F, go on the Bloomberg as well as on Bloomberg.com. Talking about FANG, uh, Facebook shares are up nearly 3% uh, trying to pick up some of the losses from the dreadful weeks that have uh, incurred the company with some pretty big losses. The U.S. is quickly getting further into debt. We have week after week of record sales of U.S. Treasuries. At what point does this matter? 
Joining me now is Jim Nadler, Chief Executive Officer of Kroll Bond Rating Agency. Uh, they have a report on the United States of America, big American flag on the front, saying uh, that the long-term rating of AAA is stable. So, Jim, why will it not affect the U.S.'s creditworthiness to become much more indebted? Certainly debt and the deficit matter. And I think that it's important over the long term to keep track of the debt and the deficit. But I think more importantly for the U.S. is the fact that the U.S. mains by far the largest reserve currency of the world. The reason that's important is because the U.S. is able to issue uh, they really have unlimited uh, ability to issue debt at a reasonable uh, interest rate. And you saw that when one of our competitors downgraded the United States. And the, the what happened the next day was the stock market tumbled, but treasuries rallied because in a crisis, everyone buys U.S. debt, even in a crisis that was sort of started by the fact that the U.S. got downgraded. And so it's counterintuitive. I'm struck by a recent article that I read on Bloomberg uh, that was talking with and looking at the holdings of a number of central banks around the world. And they were noting that there was an increase in euro-denominated assets at the expense of dollar-denominated assets. All of this to say, if the U.S. does become much more in debt, will that threaten the reserve status of the dollar? It could, but I think you still have to look at the U.S.'s ability to defend its markets. The U.S.'s ability, still we're the largest economy in the world, where we have a we have a consumer economy, we buy things from around the world, so all that impacts it. And your point is a good one, but the U.S. is more is over sixty three percent of holdings in central banks. The closest to that is twenty percent, and that's the euro. And so while we can talk about the euro may increase a couple percentage, it's the U.S. is by far the largest holding on the balance sheets of central banks. If you saw that, if you saw another currency uh, coming close, and the U.S. and 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 buyers, sub, central bank buyers, shunning U.S. debt, then I think the the ability of the U.S. to maintain a better balance sheet w- could become important. But I don't see any factors in the near term causing that to change. What's the tipping point? I mean, what what does a deficit have to get to? At which point you might start to think that. Uh that foreign investors might, I don't know, have a gut check, have a aha moment saying, maybe we don't want these treasuries. You know, I'm not sure. I think as long as we maintain a robust economy, uh, we maintain our status as uh, you know one of the leading economies and one of the leading democracies in the world, I think that that's going to have more influence than our, uh, than our balance sheet. But certainly, you know, certainly the balance sheet matters and it's going to matter more for taxes and how we spend our money over time, the things that we choose to spend our money on. And so I think that's where you'll see those discussions take place is over time, you know, how much we spend on defense, how much we spend on domestic uh, on uh, domestic uh, programs. Yeah. Um, I know that uh, Kroll uh, looks also at uh, a number of structured products as well as municipal bonds and, and, and some other securities. I'm wondering, uh, on the structured product side, 
there's been a lot of questions around auto loans, particularly subprime auto loans. We've seen credit card delinquencies picking up. From your perspective, has there been a material deterioration in the credit worthiness of consumer-related credit? And is this concerning to you? I think broadly speaking, certainly you can see the numbers. We've seen a deterioration in, in credit. The question is how big that deterioration has been. And, and I think when you look at that, you really have to look at the various segments of consumer credit. So we still are seeing, even though we're seeing a bit uh, more delinquencies in the subprime auto sector, we still see that sector as being robust. And while we talk about delinquencies maybe you know going up half a percent or something like that, they still, in the structured products world, have an, a, a very large credit enhancement that they would need to break through before it would start to lead to rating deteriorations. These are also short-term assets. And so we still are seeing in a lot of the consumer debt, particularly in subprime auto, upgrades on those tranches as those deals pay off very rapidly. And so a lot of times you'll see a single A or a double A going to triple A because the deal's paying off. And I think it speaks to the uh, the amount of credit enhancement that is in those deals to cover for losses. So yeah. yes, we've seen an increase in losses, but I think we've not seen anything that has caused us to rethink the way that we look at credit enhancement in those sectors. So in other words, people, the amount of money coming in is so much that any losses are immaterial with respect to exactly. the upper rated tranches. Jim Nadler, thank you so much for joining me today. Jim Nadler, Chief Executive Officer of Kroll Bond Rating Agency, talking the U.S. and what it would take to shake its uh, status as uh, the reserve currency. And it sounds like a heck of a lot more than what we're facing in the years to come. If you're thinking about donating to a political campaign, how about using Bitcoin? This has some regulators and lawmakers a little concerned about the potential for abuse. Uh, Michaela Ross joins us now, technology reporter for Bloomberg Law. She comes to us from Arlington, Virginia. Uh, Michaela, your story on this was fascinating. First, can you just lay out whether Bitcoin really is being used as a currency uh, to donate to political campaigns? Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Bitcoin has actually, a lot of people don't don't know, but has been donated to campaigns we were able to trace as far back as 2014. Of course, the difference now as we're gearing up for midterm elections is that the price of Bitcoin has skyrocketed. Back then it was around the $400 mark and now it's around the $8,000 mark. But um, So there's still a small number of campaigns uh, accepting this. There's a lot of people that are looking into it, testing the waters. Is this something that we would benefit from? But there's a lot of interest and growing interest. So um, small number of campaigns, but uh, what we're hearing from campaign transparency groups um, and some regulators is that they're concerned that the framework is there, conditions are there, that this could potentially be abused if there's not some some extra guidance uh, and, and uh, teeth put into some of these rules. So uh, talking about those concerns, how do Bitcoin donations differ from cash donations? Bitcoin donations are actually reported to the Federal Elections Commission as in-kind donations. 
But that's where one of the problems is, is that uh, there's a lot of different interpretations on how they should be reported and what needs to be reported by different campaigns. And that stems from a 2014 advisory opinion given by the FEC, the Federal Elections Commission again. Um, and what campaigns, what the transparency groups are concerned about is a crux, a combination of two things that are coming from uh, some legal gray area in this advisory opinion. Number one is just how much can campaigns take uh, of Bitcoin donations? Because in that advisory opinion, it's uh, capped at $100, at $100 worth of Bitcoin, you know, once converted into U.S. dollars. Um, however, that there's a divide on party lines on that, and that's been interpreted differently by different campaigns. So some are taking up to the max of uh, $2,700. And so that's more concerning to groups for the potential for fraud and combine that with the potential for uh, pseudonyms. So uh, Bitcoin, uh, you know, has the potential to uh, be used more anonymously. And even though campaigns uh, co always collect personal data of their donors, uh, if there was a pseudonym used by a, a donor, how are we going to be able to track that? And once again, uh, how are we going to subpoena that information? Um, and that is where uh, there's also a lack of, of teeth on that uh, FEC advisory opinion on how, the, how these campaigns are accepting these donations from what kinds of institutions, not obviously not banks that have uh, know your customer laws. I'm wondering what kind of political support there is to sort of close these loopholes. <laughs> or I mean, I imagine that some uh, some potential candidates might have mixed feelings on that. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's great to hear what some of the, these campaigns, we definitely don't want to allege uh, all the campaigns that we spoke to were very, uh, very um, concerned about being compliant. They were actively working to try to comply with the FEC guidance. But what they're saying the benefit of is and what we why we might be seeing more campaigns taking this in the future or committees is that um, it sets them apart. You know, it sets them apart from establishment candidates. There's a growing interest in people who are not only interested in uh, cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin, um, but also just the blockchain technology, and they want to support it. And how do you do that? Well, you donate to, you know, the uh, to some of the lawmakers who are considering this, and and that are going to be authorizing different regulatory bodies to be regulating this in the future. So um, those were a couple reasons. It's also much cheaper um, yeah. compared to a credit card, uh, where you're paying, you know, around four percent for a transaction fee for a donation. The campaign saying they're they're paying around one percent. So. Um, it's there's more, let's call them Bitcoin millionaires in the ecosystem now after uh, the, the value of, of the currency as, as uh, cryptocurrency has gone up. And so uh, if they want to be supporting more candidates, I think we're going to be seeing more of that as well. Yeah. I mean, it sounds uh, pretty cool if a campaign uses a crypto platform like Coinbase or BitPay uh, to say to younger constituents that, you know, if you if you want to do something a little bit uh, off the beaten path, check us out there. Uh, one question, though, uh, quickly here, Michaela, ahead of the midterm elections, is there any chance that these rules could get uh, honed or uh, changed in order to tighten up the protections in time for the upcoming elections? That does not look likely. We did speak to a couple of the commissioners at the FEC, and they're not hearing a lot of questions about that. It's going to take a, a wave of questions about how are we going to do this for them to to take up this rulemaking. They're quite busy. <laughs> they're quite busy, uh, for example, looking at social media ads and uh, potential for abuse there. Um, 
to be taking this up. But what we're hearing is that a rulemaking could really solve a lot of these problems um, just to clarify to campaigns exactly how much they can be taking in, exactly how they should be reporting it, because the real problem is, is that we're lacking the data. When you look at the FEC's database, it's not capturing a lot of these donations. And the reason is partly just because of the way their database has run and partly because of how it's reported and partly because of how campaigns are uh, interpreting their advisory committee. Uh, so it's, it's a catch-22. We don't really know how much this is going to be growing because we already know uh, just that the d- database isn't capturing mm-hmm. all of it. Um, and until there's more interest uh, yeah. by campaigns to be asking that and asking for that clarification, there's gonna, we're going to continue to see different yeah. interpretations of how these campaigns, even if, once yeah. again, they're trying to be compliant. Michaela Ross. And we're going to have to leave it there. Fascinating story. I recommend everyone read it. Technology reporter for Bloomberg Law. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.